Hello, you're listening to Film Greys. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. We're from the rock and roll band Phil Graves, and we're here once again talking about cinema. This episode is going to be reeling in the years. We're, we're casting our minds back to, uh, I usually say, oh, the such a jokes year, fantastic year. Like last year, I was all like, oh yeah, 2020, best year ever. But this one is ass. But uh, we did see a lot of new films, I think it's fair to say. Some of them were good. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> I think there are some great films this year. Um, some proper stinkers. Some of the best films I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> One is not going to be talked about in this episode because it's a 2022 film. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's out on Friday, so go see Memorial. Sam, you had a good year at the cinema? Uh, yeah, I mean, we both got jobs in cinemas this year. So, yeah, I feel like I've seen a shitload of stuff in the cinema this year. Or way more like normal films than I would have. Um, I'm trying to think of an example, something like Come On, Come On or something like that. Did you see that one? No, I need to catch no. it. I really like 20th Century Women though. Um, I feel like it's the sort of film that would fit your uh, like programming there. We've got it a uh, week after next, next oh, week. Actually. Nice. Yeah, so that one has like... Black and white double bill. We've got um, Macbeth <laughs> and Come On, Come On. Uh, it's monochrome we'll, week. We'll talk about Macbeth on another episode, I think. Um, not good. But yeah, I mean, I don't have much to say about Come On, Come On, to be fair, but I did enjoy it a lot more than I thought I would, and I don't know, I just wouldn't have seen it otherwise, I don't think. Um, it's Whacking Phoenix plays like a radio journalist, and he has to look after his nephew. The kid is like 10 or whatever, um, and then afterwards I found out he was British, um, which is a bit of a mindfuck, because he's like a little precocious American in the film. <laughs> uh, it's pretty wild. Damn. Um, yeah, but I don't know. Don't really necessarily want to dwell on that when we can talk about such films as No Time to Die. Was it the best June. non-wooden child <laughs> performance of the year? Um, the kid's name is literally Woody, right? It's like uh, the most American name <laughs> imaginable. But he wasn't. He was a real boy. Yeah, he yeah, wasn't yeah. A, he was a, a puppet yeah, or yeah, some yeah. sort of animated um, <sighs> child. Okay, you want me to say it? Annette is the worst film of the year. Uh, we, I didn't think we were going to get to worst films you. category so, no, so say, early into the episode. <laughs> but if you want to do it straight away, that's fine. Fuck you. No, Annette it's, it's fucking not sucked. <laughs> we so rarely disagree about movies on this podcast, really, I feel. Mm. Um, but I disagree. Yeah. I think it is the best film of the year. <laughs> <laughs> because I tried listening to the Sparks album the other day, the soundtrack, mm. and I hated it so much, man. Mm. I was like, this mm. is atrocious. This is one of the worst things I've ever heard in my life. Best filmmaking. Yeah, Straight but... Straight up. When the I... silent film, Annette, you know. Yeah, but it's not a silent film, is it? But... You have to listen to the music when you're watching it unless you cover your ears, right? And it's... It's very apparently terrible music throughout the film. I think there are two numbers, actually, that I did. Like, the first song is, like, a very, like, extravagant, like, campy number where they're all, like, walking down the street. Um, and there's quite a lot going on. And I was like, oh, like, it could be sort of tasty. Um, so much of it is, like, very operatic. Like, there's a song that's just, like, 
we are so in love. <laughs> we yeah. are so in love. Like, it just keeps going on. Mind it's numbing. Like, it's like the drooling cavalier. Yeah. Um, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, <laughs> that's what I felt about um, the tragedy of Macbeth. Um, yeah, uh, but... I don't, this film, I, something like I felt about Macbeth as well. This just looked like a fucking Dior advert or something, right? I know you don't watch television, so maybe you don't know that this is what every perfume advert looks like, right? <laughs> There's bits of Holy Motors that look like it as well. Yeah, but... I've yet to see that. And by all accounts, it's more wavy. I don't, That's amazing. I don't man. know. I like Lovers on the Bridge, or I liked it when I saw it many years ago. Mauvais song. <laughs> Nah, I nah. The cinema do look clearly isn't like a big, <laughs> big part of the film. Grey's like, no. uh, canon. <laughs> okay, this is his best film, right? Okay. No, okay. I do. Yeah. Everyone thought I was taking the piss because you all saw it before me. Yeah. And you were all like, "This is a travesty." Like, and then I said, "Like, oh, I'm gonna like it as a bit." And Joe still hasn't even worked out whether I actually like it or not, or if I'm just having him on the whole time. But I really like. I thought it was breathtaking, like so beautiful. The last scene had me in pieces. No, Some amazing no, 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 no. Like, no. It, Are you a big fan of Annie? Because that was like, ugh. By John oh, Huston. Like, oh, is it actually? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I haven't seen uh, it though. Yeah, I hated Puppet Annette. Right, I thought it was like un, unwatchable. And then yeah, in the final scene, you know. She's a rich, <laughs> she's a real Annette or whatever. Like, I, just the the bit when he's taken around all the airports was I'd what? never seen that when they go to every airport in the world in one scene. You know, I'll never forget Annette. Yeah, the thing is, I I know you hated everyone's favorite art house film of the year, The French Dispatch, right? Which I also thought sort of sucked. Stinky. But this is yeah, exactly. This is just as naff, right? Yeah, it goes so much harder with the naffness though. I've never seen, so, mm. it's like, you know, Tommy or something like that. It was like, you can't even, it's so committed to it. The French Dispatch was the total opposite for me because it was so mm. removed and like mm. particularly so dead. Like, mm. Well, I mean, it's an archetypal sort of pastiche, isn't it? Of like Tati and like New Wave films in the middle sequence. Yeah. Um, and just like a dead who's who um it's like walking through a graveyard um <laughs> going to madame two swords yeah oh god yeah um there are some sequences like the bit with um owen wilson riding the bicycle looks like labyrinth of cinema or something Ooh. just like yeah it sure and does, it's not actually. meant to i don't think no. um yeah i i would say i like the first part I like the first, st not the first part, I like the first story. I really objected to the animated sequences, which I thought were unwatchable. It reminded me of like, um, you know, just those like shitty old Flash cartoons. Um, right. Like Burnt Face Man or whatever. Um, <laughs> or You Kicked My Dog or some shit. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was like, what is this? Um. Uh, yeah, I tend to really enjoy his work. I didn't like um, the Isle of Dogs either that much, mm. but I do like the Grand Budapest Hotel and Moonrise Kingdom and shit. I think they're both really good. Yeah. Historically, yeah. I had really liked them as well. Yeah, 
just couldn't hack, hack this one. It was the top grossing film at my cinema of the year, I believe. Was it? The biggest hitter. Ours will definitely have been Bond, which... Um, hey. Yeah. No time to die. Yeah. Bond 24 or 25. A great time at the movies. It's done like three times as well as any other film. Oh, oh apart from the Spider-Man film, which neither of us have or probably will not watch. Um, Shang-Chi, The Eternals, um, Peter Rabbit 2, <laughs> Black Widow, Venom, Let There Be Carnage, Free Guy, uh, F9, The Fast Saga, and yeah, Eternals. Then- and Never Gonna Snow Again. <laughs> um, I really um, would I have liked seen to have any seen of those. that, actually. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I've seen, but Bond was fire. I thought, Let, I've never yeah. enjoyed a James Bond movie so much before. Mm. It was lit. It's basically uh, the testament of Dr. Mabusa. <laughs> and it is quite similar, but a lot of them are. <laughs> a Rami Malek's I'll, character is shockingly bad. Lucifer Satan. Yeah, he was terrible. <laughs> he's he's like the worst actor in the world, I think. But sorry, I, was, I can't help can't help but hyperbolize, especially on the 2021 episode. But he is real bad. But irregardless, <laughs> I thought that I thought it was sick. And it seems yeah. to this seems to my friend Jack said this to me that like all the people who really don't like it, don't like James Bond movies, weren't up for it. All ended up really enjoying it. And how did how the hell do they do that? Is it through thanks to Phoebe Waller Bridge? Big if true, like yeah. I mean, there's bits at the beginning where it's like Bond like bickering with his with his partner or whatever, and you know, it's all very like down to earth. Um, <laughs> I you enjoyed it though. I yeah, I thought it was fun for what it was. Um, I think largely because I went with my dad and he hadn't been to the cinema in ages. That I think that was mm. the first one we went back to. Um, and he really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it for what it was, but like, I literally never need to watch it again because it offers yeah. nothing. And there are aspects of it which are actually shite. But yeah, I mean, it's, that's, isn't that sort of the definition of a blockbuster? Like, it's about getting you into the cinema and that was the point. That was why they delayed it so long as well. Yeah, it was better than Tanae, the, the uh, equivalent <laughs> film from, from last year. Sure. Did, I can't remember whether you liked June or not. Nah, rubbish, man. Yeah, yeah. Rubbish. Mm. Bad source material, bad um, tone. Yeah, I don't, I don't like the, the book. I couldn't get through it when I tried to read it. The Lynch film goes hard though, but <laughs> no one's ready. No one's ready to have that conversation. I, I did like Aspect. I, in fact, I did enjoy it. But again, like on its own terms, I think compared to some of the films that we're going to be talking about, which I will definitely rewatch over the years. Because oh, I never think they're actually, like, rich films. <laughs> like, yeah, well, exactly. Like, you watch it in the cinema and then it's like, who fucking cares? Like, I barely watched it, man. Like, honestly. Sure. And, like... Is that because of what you're going to say? Because of the lighting, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. I couldn't hear anything. I couldn't see anything. Like, and it's not because of the presentation. It's not, you know. <laughs> yeah, my man <laughs> set up the speakers. Like. Yeah. No, <laughs> everything. And that sounded fine. But nah, I mean, it's just not my thing, really. Mm. And like, I don't know, my flatmate was watching a bit of Blade Runner 2. I still, I still haven't seen it. I can't really bring myself to watch it. I feel like they they feel like some of the 1921 films, you know. Mm. Like Orphans of the Storm or something like that, where it's so, so much artifice and it's so like 
self-serious and like important you know i mean pr- prisoners is like a I mean, again, I, I'm not okay. fixed. I'm not fixing to watch it, but like, whatever. So that was June. <laughs> you liked I, it? Yeah, I don't. Again, I don't really like Timothy Chalamet, but I thought he was fine in it. He's really good in Don't Look Up, man. <laughs> I've He's seen really a good few in that. screenshots, but I haven't watched it. Yeah, June. It doesn't even bear like sort of getting into the narrative and like how objectionable it is. Um, sure. As a piece of like you know, like a white saviour text or whatever. Um, yeah. I can't be asked. Like, it is what it is. Um, I don't know. It's no Book of Boba Fett. <laughs> like, what are the other movies that people have seen? You wanted to talk about West Side Story um, as a sort of counterpoint to Annette. I, yeah, I didn't catch it. I wanted to watch it with my mum because, like, she loves the original um, and, like, over Christmas, it just didn't happen, and we still haven't managed. Um, but, yeah, tell me it's about gonna it. It's going to stay in the cinemas for quite a while, I reckon. It's one yeah. of those kinds of films, so mm-hmm. you'll probably be able to catch it. Bond has been in the cinema for, like, over 100 days now, by the way. Still, like, still in the cinema? We could go and watch Bond tonight if you wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> Which is mad. Like, it came out at the end of September last year, and it's playing in <laughs> dozens of cinemas tonight. Um. They want to find out how he survived. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just like so can walk out while he's still alive. Sorry, West Side Story. Cool, everyone. Go see West Side Story by Steven Spielberg. It is an amazing film. It mm. is a great subject, um, source material. Sorry, not so- oh. <laughs> it's a great subject matter. <laughs> I've heard, one thing I've heard about it from um, like patrons is that like it's, they're quite surprised about its rating because, you know, maybe you can talk more about about this and how um like deep it is or explicit or whatever but being like they're surprised it's like a 12 or 12a or whatever because there's like violence and uh like a rape scene yeah i mean i'm not surprised that it's a 12 but yeah, yeah, I mean, there's people getting stabbed and stuff. It's gang gang violence, like you saw. Yeah, exactly. Blue story, and there's like a threat of rape sequence that you know, the sort of thing you'd see in all all types of movies. Yeah, from earlier times, which is very threatening. But I mean, every sequence is just so well directed. Like, mm. you know, whereas the other one is so often talked about as being like ridiculous and like, oh, they're just like dancing at each other and like clicking their fingers, you know. But like this. The choreography is different. Still still choreographed and they're still the same. They're doing the same stuff, but it just feels a bit more interesting, analytical, political. has some of the best film sets I've ever seen. Um, it largely takes place on this one incredible set, which is like a slum clearance on mm. the west side, which is which I found out the other day is actually set on like the blocks where like the Lincoln Center is now. Right. Yes, really I heard that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's one of the best Spielberg films. I sound like Greg Greg T right now, but um, people seem to be really hit up that there's there's loads of unsubtitled Spanish. I mean, mm. pe- these people can go and go to a like a subtitled hard of hearing screening if they want to find out what the Spanish. Ah, but would it not just say sp- speaking Spanish in parentheses? I mm, reckon that's point. exactly what it would do because it reduces it to sort of. Um, you know, non-English background noise. <laughs> Interesting. Well, the way Steven Spielberg talks about it is he says like, oh, it would be a concession to the English part of the audience as as opposed to like treating both like the English-speaking audience and the Spanish-speaking audience as like equal participants in the 
spectatorship, right? Um, in a similar way to like how Darius Marder talked about Sound of Metal, mm. which was like designed to be watched by like people who can hear and uh, deaf people simultaneously, mm. right? I don't think that really holds up on an international <laughs> level, though. Like, obviously, Spanish and English have a sort of different dialectic in the US, right? To, like, here, where it's not the most ubiquitous second language, right? Yeah, sure. Or in China or something, where, <laughs> whereas in, like, southern US um, states... Most people will speak it as a second language or whatever, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, sure. I mean, um, that's in, I mean, we'll see how it plays out. It seems like a bit of a non-issue to me because it's a, it's a movie, right? Yeah, and like, sure. Um, <laughs> I don't know, like what I said about Annette and like, you know, what I say about all films is like, the with it, like imagery this sick and like the experience is so sick. Like, why would you worry about like, oh, not catching a few like, you know, very casual like bits of spanish like mm, when you t you mm. know exactly what's going on in the film like it doesn't need but i'm sure the serrano de bergerac is the same if they know what they're doing <laughs> maybe maybe people complaining about this just can't pick up on the sort of contextual clues as to what's happening in the conversation and are just uh frustrated about <laughs> okay well if they don't like um if they don't like that, there's a bunch <laughs> of uh, Tsai Ming Lang films with no dialogue. Oh, great, yeah. Um, including Days, which is probably the best film to come out this year. I oh, know I've said that about like three movies already. No, it's great. But um, that, well, I, one thing I forgot to say on this podcast about Days by Tsai Ming Lang yeah. is that it's unsubtitled as well. The whole film, it opens with a thing that says this film is intentionally unsubtitled. You're soon looking at like an eight minute shot of just like a dude looking out a window. So like you know mm. different things matter anyway but i mean that I, I guess this is quite a rad stance i've chosen to take in this episode of like i think all films should have no subtitles <laughs> yeah. um i mean i think about uh a film i watched recently in preparation for our upcoming um a pitch pong episode mm. um tropical malady which I'm, I'm you know all i'll say is that i loved it but that could have had no subtitles and you would have understood the as much as you do with them. It's of course, really, man. you know, um, film has the possibility to transcend language because uh, yeah. it's a language of its own. And it only took people 100, <laughs> 130 years to, to work that out. Maybe we can talk about a few documentaries now. My favourite genre. 
There are a few good ones, actually. Yeah, exactly. Um, not a genre I typically associate with the cinema. Um, the most cinematic genre. Yeah. No, um, with being idiots, with being dickheads. Yeah, well, for sure, for sure. As Meli Modi said on our episode, it's a false illusion. Definitely. Um, I didn't catch this one, but I know you thought it was great. Todd Haynes' uh, The Velvet Underground. Maybe you can talk about that for a minute. Todd the God knocks it out of the park once again. I, you know, prior exhibition history in the cinema, a lot of which for me was screening music documentaries, right? Mm, sure. And I also just watch them because I care about rock and roll. Well, we spoke about We Jam Econo, the Minutemen documentary hey. before on the show, and that one's great. Um, Hitherto, before 2021, I would have said that's the best music documentary. <laughs> However, folks, I thought the Velvet Underground film was sensational. They do make a big deal out of tying it to the film world that was concurrent at the time. Um, I didn't manage to see Walden on Sunday, but that has footage that is used in this film. Nice. You said like Amy Taubin is like a talking head and stuff. She's in it loads, yeah. Yeah. And so cool. is Jonas Mikas's last filmed interview was for this film mm. as well. Um, it's put together in such an artful way. And the fact that there's no synced live footage of the Velvet Underground does complicate it a lot because they had to be really, really creative in how they do it. There's loads of split screening. A lot yeah. of it is in sort of 16 screens, which is superbly cinematic, I've got to say. And, you know, getting to hear Waiting for the Ocean and you, the first one you hear is European Sun, you know. I was just, you know, I've been listening to that band like my whole fucking life and like it actually did do something justice. There was no Doug Yule, there was no Lonesome Cowboy Bill, which I was a bit gutted about. And there was no Lulu in the closing yeah. montage <laughs> of album covers. But I think it pretty much captured, you know, a lot of what is sick about this band and in a pretty novel way where, you know, it's such a dead genre and I wasn't even, I guess I was quite excited for it, but... Mm, very limited cinematic release you had it for what like two days or something yeah yeah very very limited but i don't know everyone's gassed about get back which i couldn't manage at all i've yet to watch it artless and um mm. other people have called it yassified it is a bit like fucking the same with his like they shall not grow old yeah he yassified sigrid sassoon in that one yeah exactly yeah oh no sorry that's terence davies later <laughs> that's gonna be great i can't yeah. wait for that um but yeah, just a bit too restored, I guess. Mm. And couldn't really hack it. Everyone seems to love it, though. Yeah, one uh, music documentary that I did see was Summer of Soul, the one directed by Questlove, which was brilliant. Uh, watching that in the cinema, I think that's on Disney+, Plus, like the um, Beatles one. But watching that in the cinema was great. I mean, it's quite formulaic, intercutting um, footage of this like Harlem music festival um, in the late 60s with like talking heads of people that were there, band like players, performers, organisers, um, to just depict this event in like a very tender way. Um, and the performances are just staggering. Sly and the Family Stone, Stevie Wonder, um, Mahalia, um, Jackson. Yeah, breathtaking stuff. So many faves, man. Hugh Masekela. Nina Simone. Yeah, she's unbelievable. Everyone is like completely enchanted by her. It's a great time at the pictures, folks. The Summer of Soul. I think it'll be revived quite a lot because, I mean, it's got one of those like, please play it loud at the start. Yeah. And, like, but it is, you know, 
footage has never been released before. That's part of the story of the film that they incorporate into its narrative. The sort of way that um, compared to Woodstock or something like that, this footage was like neglected. And they look at the sort of um, way that sort of institutional bias could have factored into that being a predominantly black event with like black producers and event producers and stuff. Um, it's a you know in that sense it's a miracle that the footage even exists uh, in the first place. Like and again they discuss how um, you know one of the TV guys or whatever like really pushed for it. It's a really interesting story. Thinking about it makes me want to watch it again. Actually, another documentary that I really liked this year um, and that I sort of raced to the cinema to watch was the Arsene Wenger Invincible film. Oh, I still need to see it, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's streamable. Is it still your number one? Oh, my number one. I mean, it's up there. Like, I found it to be very moving when I was watching it. I think he, he is like a true hero and legend. Um, the way his relationship with Arsenal deteriorated. I don't know. It's all part of, like, it being, like, a very classical story you know like a romance um and he articulates this in a very interesting and touching way he's always been like a amazing communicator and sort of aphorist and that's something that comes across in the film they go to dutlenheim his home like very small hometown in the alsace region and there yeah it's just wild like where he's talking about you know it's just yeah I, I cried in the cinema watching this film, like, obviously. And, like, the gate, the archival footage is, like, stunning as well. It's structured around the unbeaten season, the 03 04. Um, Great. Didn't even know that. Yeah. That's sick. 26 wins, 12 draws. Like, that is the story that it's telling. Um, and it's chronological in that sense, but then it also, like, sort of intercuts, like, more personal stuff. Um, he is just a fucking. He's just a king, man. Um, he is. He is such a king. There's one quote that I just need to pull up. I think I put it in my. I'm glad. It sounds quite different to a lot of these sort of in vogue, um, long form football documentaries like the Sunderland one and the City one and stuff that are being made these days, which is just sort of like more in the sort of get back mold, where it's kind of dead and like there's a lot of um, there's not really a story implicit in the filmmaking. Oh yeah, it's like a historical documentary. I guess that's the point. But he's also alive to interview still. Uh, here's that quote. He's talking about Highbury, like reminiscing about it. Uh, and he's already said, Highbury, my soul, the Emirates, my suffering. Um, but yeah, he says, everything was small. The corridors were small, but all your ancestors had their spirit in there. And yeah, this is. <sighs> I I think they should make two films about Arsene Wenger every day. <laughs> um, yeah, I I was really glad to see it in cinema, and I think it will probably be on Amazon or some shit. I think it's like a Amazon and like Canal co-production or something. So yeah, um, I think that's probably it for documentaries, unless you have any rogue rogue ones to chuck in. Okay, Radu Jude made a, a sort of documentary this year you're referring to uppercase print right i am indeed i haven't seen that one do you want to walk us through it there are documentary elements to the other one um uppercase print <laughs> is a film about a boy if you like um american vandal then you're kind of prep prep for it <laughs> yeah. you know the sort of mockumentary mm. they're, they're very similar this is uh romanian vandal 
it's obviously a lot darker than that. It's yeah, so a kid. He's like a political dissident in the late communist yeah, he's era. Yeah, like he's like a 14 year old boy, you know, who listens to like Radio Free Europe in, yeah, like Ceausescu's uh, dominion. But it's in, it's in like 83. Okay. And it's about his like successive attempts to, you know, just write uh, resistant graffiti, like slogans and stuff like that, that uh, express some sort of, you know, political frustration saying like oh in poland they have like free unions and stuff like that mm. and then he gets snaked out and then there's like a big trial and it's all about obviously like the state and how it inserts itself into his life to make sure that like he can't do anything like this again a sort of clockwork orange narrative and it's all filmed like a trial with sort of people giving depositions like straight into the camera very monotonously like which is in a very converse way to his other film uh bad luck bang or loony porn which has incredibly animated speech this is like probably the most monotonous film i've seen this year and do you think it's actual court transcripts i believe it is yeah i believe it is people uh reciting because it has been it's been talked about as a documentary but it takes place on a very artfully lit uh sound stage mm. and it uses a lot of sort of archival footage in a sort of adam curtis loznitsa fashion like unbelievable Oof, archival yeah. stuff oh i watched about 30 minutes of state funeral earlier by oh, the way and so it was good, unbelievable man. yeah and yeah. <laughs> oh, he he's got he's done like three films this year and he's got a couple others at film mm, festivals i watched a short one um night at the opera which was you know he's a great archival filmmaker i mean compared to peter jackson or something um sure yeah <laughs> you know one of them is very blackpilled and the other is very, very not. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about Radu Jude, though. I really want to watch Uppercase Print. I, yeah, I sort of fucked up not watching it. I don't think it had a cinematic release here, but had a 2021 movie online release here. Is that I correct? I think it and Bad Luck Banging both premiered at Berlin in 2021 mm. in February. Mm. He yeah he also has made more um, documentaries as well which are less accessible off the back of the release of Bad Luck Banging um, the ICA did a retrospective of his work at which I was lucky to see um, a program of his short films which was sick um, and uh, one of my favourites um, I do not care we go down in history as barbarians amazing film but yeah they didn't program any of his Basically, whenever, so for I Do Not Care We Go Down the History of Barbarians, he also made a documentary about the same subject, which presumably is, you know, formally very different. I haven't seen it, so I can't compare. Um, I think he did something similar for Afarim. Wow. He basically makes these documentaries as well. Um, so, it's, yeah, I want to see how Uppercase Print like, sort of combines those those elements. You're right, though. Um, Bad Luck Banging does have documentary elements as well, I guess, by virtue of its uh, location shooting. They're both films about, like, dissidents in one way or another, <laughs> yeah. or about, like, n non-conformity or something like that, right? Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn, I loved it so much more than you thought I was going to love it. You know? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. You hadn't seen it when we covered it on the... Nah, I've seen it twice now. I want to watch it again. <laughs> not because i like don't watch porn and i'm like been opened up to some beautiful new world but like fuck it's so masterful man mm. the first time i watched it i didn't like the first section where she's just like walking around and the camera's like pan into all the you know adverts and stuff like that but when you sort of seen the whole film and you watch it again like the the weight of like living in a society is yeah so oh yeah, yeah 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 <laughs> 
And I mean, it's so clearly like a pandemic film as well. So it has that like very specific temporal quality to it. Yeah. Um, where like everyone's either, you know, I was going to say everyone's wearing a mask, but like some people are wearing masks, you know. The priest wears a BLM mask, which is a nice touch, I thought. Great. Um, and, um, <laughs> some people have, you know, the shit, terrible masks. Yeah. And stuff. Everyone's got a different mask. It's uh, it's hard to stress how like formally wavy this film is, though. I feel like I probably spent ages trying to describe it on the last episode that we spoke about it on. But yeah, just in short, you've just said what the first part is. She's literally just walking around um, Bucharest, like, and and the camera's like getting distracted by adverts. The second part is um, a short dictionary of signs, wonders, and anecdotes, which is like, you know, mixes the sort of sacred and the profane in a, like, very jokes way. And then the third part is this, like, show trial full of, like, um, like crash zooms and, like, crazy, like, moralising and um, didactic speech. Just amazing performances from everyone in that, especially the woman who plays Emmy, the main character, I think. What these people managed to do with masks. Yeah, that's it. And the guy who you don't see who's doing all the ad-libs, I love the bit where she says, you know, it's basic stuff, Hannah Arendt, and then you just hear like a voice go, Hannah Montana. <laughs> you know, it killed me. It's, it's a damning, savage film about, you know, fuck, man. Yeah, hypocrisy, society. I mean, it's very culturally specific, but also extremely universal. And, you know, he's, there's lots of interesting interviews with him talking about fleshing out like the casting process and stuff sensational movie it's like three different peter greenaway films in one <laughs> yes which is yeah. amazing yeah the last bit is very much so staged like a peter greenaway film actually or like sort of somewhere between that and like love island or something um, <laughs> <laughs> but i mean that's the point like it's meant to look like a fucking like TV panel or something. Yeah, like, yeah, sure. Um, oh, you got to watch that film 1208 to uh, East of Bucharest that I left yeah, yours, we man. Yeah, we going to watch it yesterday. Worth a watch. Looks fun. Yeah, great. That's the films of Radu Jude in 2021. Absolutely killed it, I would say. Um, he killed I- it. Who else? You know who else killed it this year in two films? Oh, yeah. Um, the craziest Dumbleville. <laughs> The best English filmmaker in the world. No cap, though. He probably actually is not. <laughs> He's no Denis Villeneuve. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, pretty impressive. Ridley Scott making two films that came out like back to back. Yeah. I mean, they're both basically mini series, aren't they? These are two films sure. that are two and a half hours long. They both would have been probably better as four hour HBO dramas or whatever. Yeah, we're talking about House of, House Casa de Gucci and um, The Last Jewel. So the guy has take, undertaken some crazy, extraordinary feats of filmmaking. Like when he reshot his prior film, All the Money in the World with Christopher Plummer, like oh, in four yeah. weeks or something like that. That is wild. That was wild. And they've done it in like, a, yeah, a month or something where it's like about to come out and then they reshot everything with Christopher Plummer, like half the movie. Was that instead of uh, Kevin Spacey or something? It was, it was indeed, yeah. So he did that. He did the, the crazy reshoot. And, you know, this is also a mad undertaking. The Last Duel, The Last Duel, written by Ben Affleck, Matt Damon and Nicole Holofcener is a, a medieval film. And I was really up for it compared to the two other big medieval films from the year. It's based on, you know, again, like... Uh, 
Radu Jude's uppercase print is based on real, you know, historical accounts. What's Froissart's Chronicle? In fact, no, this is adapted from like a, a book that I think uses um, a real historical rape case as it's um, jumping off. Oh, it's point. like a modern book. Yeah, 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 that uses like a historical rape to... I'm not sure whether that's where, where the structure of the film comes from, because, yeah, I guess that's the most... One comes of the from most um, Rashomon points. by Akira Kurosawa. Well, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> we see, we see the events surrounding the allegation of rape and the sort of on, subsequent honor duel from three different perspectives. First, we see Jodie Comer, who is the victim. Uh, she's married to Matt Damon's character, right? Um, so first, it's like from his perspective, where he's like sort of like heroic and like masculine. Next, we see it from Adam Driver's character, the accused, who actually plays a really interesting character, sort of on the threshold of, like, the Renaissance or whatever. Some, like, proto-free love, sort of, Decameron-style, like, <laughs> orgiest. Um, and then we see it from Jodie Comer's perspective. Uh, and it does this really... I thought it was quite interesting as like a way of like exploring like different historical interpretations of the same events, especially as it relates like wider events, like how Matt Damon's character performs in a battle or whatever. Matt, Matt Damon was so good. Yeah, yeah. As like a frustrated idiot as he ultimately... As a Jesse Plemons character. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Um, and then, sorry, the point is when it gets to Jodie Comer's like perspective, then it's just like... For the previous ones, it's been like, this person's like version of the truth. And then it's like, this person's version of the truth. And then like, the preceding words like, fall away. And it's just like, the truth. This is probably my least favourite cinematic moment of the year. Not to say that, you know, that's not anti like believing women or anything like that. I just thought like, that's just... There's just a different, yeah, yeah, there were different ways like, of sort of framing that. Yeah, I did. You did, like, <laughs> you really didn't need to do that, Ridley, like... And also, like, I thought most of the film was really shonky and incomplete mm, feeling. I really enjoyed it, actually. Uh, I did, it did feel a bit long. And... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean... I, I felt the same about House of Gucci, which I... Yeah, and it did also It was like watching repetitive. Celine and so, Julie go boating, man. Like, it, it was... <laughs> yeah, that's so true. That's so true. The scenes where you, like, learn new information about, like, characters' perspectives and, like, how they you know, relate to, like, reality or whatever. Yeah. Um, they, they seem too few and far between from, like, scenes where it did feel like we were watching the same thing over and over again um, with, like, the slightest modifications. And what? You, like, there was any chance this film was going to come down the side of, like, Adam Driver's character or whatever, you know? Yeah, but I... Yeah, well... Yeah. I'm sorry. I just, yeah, I really thought yeah. it was fucking stupid, to be honest, and bad. But the other one was also stupid and bad, but it was one of my good. favorite films. <laughs> yeah. But it was really good. Like a film as equally like badly made to me, and like confounding and boring and overlong, sort of patronizing. Yeah, but fuck, it was like it was like a Carry On film or something like that, <laughs> or like some some big spoof. It's like watching Airplane, The Room, these sorts of mm. things come to mind. I'm talking about House of Gucci. Fucking hell. I don't think I've ever seen a film like this, though. It was ridiculous, man. Mm. It's like, it is like Austin Powers or something like that. But people talk about, like, Lady Gaga talks about it like it was like, oh, my God, I can't believe what I've been through. Like, 
This she's was the good most... in it, but... Yeah, she's amazing. What a performance. Give her the Oscar, right? Yeah. I thought mm. she was great. The facial acting, the bit when she turns up with Salma Hayek and they're like looking all butch and they're trying to get the the hitman was unbelievable. Jared Leto was unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, I hate to um, say it. Just a crazy role. Yeah. He brought it. Jeremy Irons was a, a zombie. Uh, anything Al for Pacino, Al Pacino? Yeah. A, a man I hate and <laughs> yeah. a terrible actor. Absolutely killing it. <laughs> where did you get that shoe? Tell me, where'd you get the shoe? Because I know. I'm I was I don't saying to Francis <laughs> that, like, you know, they can't. Nothing can be, like, serious. It's such a stupid, easy point to make or whatever, but, like, it feels like everything that's made today is really unserious or like mm. through the looking glass when you see like that Nick, that trailer for the Nicolas Cage film where he's playing like or every role he's ever played before and stuff like that. Or just like just everything like the externals and like, you know, Space Jam. You can't, you know, for this is like a perfect example of it where like they they kind of it feels like they kind of thought they were making like The Godfather or something like that or some sort of epic yeah, oh yeah, for sure. But I've got to say, I mean, okay, The Godfather has a few more things going for it. It obviously has a more distinct palette, for example. <laughs> but otherwise, it is literally as hammy as as this. Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. quite, man. Yeah. This is better. The house, house of Gucci is better than The Godfather. <laughs> yeah, I back it. <laughs> cool. Um... Maybe we can talk about uh, The Green Knight by David Lowry. I know you hated his film A Ghost Story and you once like sort of fast forwarded it through me. Uh, Atrocious. Through it for me and it was, yeah. The Green Knight, a lot of people seem to really hated because hmm. it's boring and amateurish. <laughs> <laughs> but I quite, I quite enjoyed it to be honest. I mean, it's a real stoner movie. Like, mm. I don't think it's for like actual analysis especially not as a historical film mm. or some sort of european art house bergman tarkovsky shit that is trying to model itself off it's just a wavy sort of hodorowsky style mm. trip i feel mm. like the style of the film makes itself very apparent um in both like what's paying about it and what's sort of less paying about it like in the first like two scenes the first one is like a very static. It's the, the Satan Tango sort of opening shot. Painterly shot of like, you know, the end of a siege or whatever, and like a sort of goose like walking around. Is that what it is? Um, and it's like, oh, nice. And then, then the second scene where like Death Patel as the main character, he like wakes up and he's like walking around and it's like, smash cut, smash cut, smash cut. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and then so. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's going to be like that. There, But, I mean, we're going to talk about cinematography. There's a uh, there's a scene where, um, what's his name? Barry Keogh. I keep um, on thinking about that shot, yeah, his, when he turns up. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like a sort of, the camera's walking backwards and Barry Keogh's character, like, sort of walking alongside him. Um, in kind a of, red, of Red Dead-esque. Yeah. <laughs> Um, oh, very cool shot that. For those playing the bingo, um, there's. Uh, da, 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 da. I was thinking about doing a bingo card actually. Yeah. <laughs> there's so many more bait ones coming up. Fuck, I've got them all lined up. Um, yeah, I, I quite liked it for again for what it was. It would have been cool to it watch right. it in the cinema, but um, yeah, you're right. It was like a nice sort of 
stupid. Hodorowski is a reasonable comparison, to be honest. Um, but I mean, it, at least it does have the sort of narrative underpinnings of the original romance, even if it's slightly changed. Um, yeah, and Deathstar was great. I'm just going to say a few that we've covered already. Uh, like The Father, Europa, which I want to count as a 2021 film. Yeah, I'll, I'll have that. That is amazing. Although the first the first non-festival screening is in 2022. It's like in a couple of weeks. Ah, okay. Lame. I'm going to go, I reckon. Um, I want to see that shit again. Undina, um, again, these are films that we've spoken about, so we really don't need to get into it. That's uh, we discussed in our Christian Petzold episode. The Father we discussed, hmm, what would that have been? Like the awards one Oscar or Fever. We're not going to do one of those this year. But these these are good films. Um, a few the Father we, was amazing. Yeah, a few that we haven't spoken about. Um, Limbo, which I only recently caught up on. Um, I quite liked right. it. Yeah, it has nice framing and isn't, you know, an interesting story about asylum seekers. And Well, one of my colleagues that I was speaking to about it, um, who, you know, I guess like a who like immigrated over here um, was not like that impressed with its representation of that as like an experience or like especially like where it was coming from. For me, I responded slightly differently to it. Um, And yeah, I think the framing is peng basically throughout. There's like a not very great aspect ratio shift like uh, for a sort of climactic moment at the end of the film, Um, but. Whatever. Do you think the sort of you haven't seen many of those charismatic films, have you? I've not seen a single one. Yeah, again, that that like really, uh, I guess, sort of representational ethics, like how how sort of uh, Hollywoody can you make these like miserable stories of like passage and uh, assimilation and being treated horribly by the state? I'm sure a lot of people have very reasonable objections to it. It just hasn't really stuck with me, Limbo, but I did quite I liked it at the time. Um, and it was sort of wry and had good performances. But yeah, it's probably gone quite significantly down in my estimation since watching it. Sure. Um, Martin Eden. I remember we really both Fantastic. enjoyed that quite a lot when we watched it. That's like a Jack London um, adaptation uh, transposed to uh, like a sort of atemporal Italy. Sort of reminded me of the Christian Petzold films that we've been watching yeah, around, definitely, around definitely. the time that we saw it. Really impressive movie, man. I haven't seen anything by Pietro Marcello, but I know he's part of this uh, anthology film that's about to come out where it was him and Alice Rorwisher and someone else. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that, actually. Nice. But Alice, is that how we're doing it? It is, nice. it is. Yeah. Um, Martin Eden, great adaptation. Like, mm. they did really interesting stuff with it. I mean, it's a classic sort of rags to riches story about like a political writer and then sort of grapples with the sort of paradoxes within that yeah i mean he gets you know it's it is interesting in you know italy they've you know played out this sort of uh communist fascist dialectic and probably a more dramatic way than any other european country um so to see sort of european history collapsed and i mean it does the message of the film i think is quite problematic because it kind of reduces sort of class narratives to like uh almost sort of segregation or Mm. mindset mm. um it's basically a story about a dude who like gets really above his station starts reading all this like wavy poetry and philosophy but he doesn't really know how to interpret it so he becomes like a sort of strike breaking fascist mm. by the end of the film mm. doesn't really um 
correspond to my sort of analysis of this of a lot of this 20th century writing that he's reading and stuff like that um and it is quite a problematic film but in quite a cool way i think mm. um in quite an interesting way in a way in a way that's uh, gives you a lot more food for thought than um the um, sort of problematized american narratives that we tend to see if you want to think about the sort of I haven't read the source material, but if you want to think about the sort of political context of it, I think um, Oscar Michaud, his last film, the main character, based on himself, was called Martin Eden. Damn. And he was a self-professed fan of um, Jack London's writing. I can't remember what rapper it was. It was like a French rapper who did a song called I'm, I'm Like Martin Eden as well. Mm. It was Nick Fu. Uh, let's talk about Petit Maman. Did you like that? Yeah. Loved it. I think it's better than Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Um, More magical. It hit me so damn hard. And I thought it was just really, really good, to be honest. This It's, it's sort of like Pan's Labyrinth, but like not dread in the slightest. Yeah, it doesn't have any stupid uh, costumes. Yeah, or like uh, My Neighbor Totoro or something. Uh, the premise is basically that, like, a little girl, uh, her grandma dies at the beginning of the film and they go to clear out the house in, like, the woods. Obviously, like, sort of a magical place. And, uh, yeah, she meets, like, the child version of her own mother, the eponymous Petite Mama. Yeah, it's a cool film. It's really short as well, uh, which is nice. It's a COVID movie, but I thought, you know, from very, very simple framework, Brissonian or whatever. Yeah, it was really, really powerful. And really sick and yeah my kind of movie i liked yeah. it you don't yeah. need no explosions and avengers to make people cry in the cinema you don't need three three spider-men pointing at each other at once to make you feel like you're in a in a cinema all you need is it's the same as the spider-man shit from what i understand so i <laughs> I take it back. Uh, the most dramatic bit is where they like get in a boat and like on like a very placid and the worst lake. tune you've ever heard in your life yeah and it's like you know just to clarify there's not like a storm or anything like it's like <laughs> there's no peril involved like you get the sense that whatever they're sailing on it's probably about you know half a meter deep or something um yeah i mean it was a very chill film and yeah just like a nice little allegory about grief and um like memory and all this stuff yeah a big theme i guess it's a lot of the big films of the year that seem to have connected with art house audiences have had this i guess in a sort of post-pandemic landscape where a lot of us have lost uh, loved ones you know nomadland is a big film this year about grief <laughs> a terrible terrible movie that i don't care to revisit can we talk about a sick one uh what is it drive my car by ryusuke hamaguchi it's exactly that yeah <laughs> that is a, an amazing film i just saw today uh sam would you care to introduce it as i think you did really love this uh yeah it really um really resonated with me it's a very simple narrative about a theater director um who is bereaved of his wife um, and then he's like putting on a production of Uncle Vanya in Hiroshima and he's not allowed to drive his car as per the terms of his like sort of contract with this like arts company and he's assigned like driver this like very sort of surly young woman um, and yeah it's a film about them 
both processing their grief uh, together. Uh, it's like three hours long. Did you feel like it was long when you were watching it? I didn't, but you know, you know how I feel about length. Like, if it's less than eighty-five and more than two and a half hours, it's in like the sort of good period where I don't really check the thing. Anything in between, I'm like, God. Like when we were watching the Macbeth film, I was like, and that's only like a hundred minutes. But I was check- checking my phone like every five minutes. Like, God, when's this going to be over? Even I knew exactly the story and shit. Yeah. I have but, no, no. I mean, I I have no objection to a long film, but like this just didn't feel long. It felt like it was like an hour and a half or something. In the same way that Out One doesn't feel thirteen hours. No, <laughs> um, it's just elegant, you know. Um, some really beautiful shots, a really great score. I feel like we haven't really spoken about scores. Oh, in this. the tunes were so um, good in yeah, this. Yeah, it's really. Um, God, I don't know the guy's name, but favorite tunes but, of twenty one, you reckon? of the scores i i really like the arsene wenger invincible score actually i didn't really say i mean it yeah i i think it's just because it was like a super sentimental film um so i like sort of permitted it having like a bit of a cheesy score Um, but then every five (laughs) minutes in the score it's like what do you think of shit yeah exactly exactly really Uh, yeah yeah it's really really good you gotta watch it um Sorry, I got distracted though. Um, Fire! Wow. What film are we talking about? I can't. Drive my car. Oh, drive my car. Yeah. Beautiful tunes. Yeah, great performances. Such like a quiet film as well. It's a Murakami adaptation, and it sort of reminded me of Burning from a couple of years ago, the Korean, um, who was it, Lee Chang Dong or something, um, adaptation. I like this a lot more than Burning. Yeah, I think they're both like sub ten page stories, right? Right. but just so much can be like eked out of those scenarios. Um, this is a way less dread film. The overall vibe is way more sort of conciliatory. You know, I've always found Murakami quite hard to approach where I've tried to read a couple of his novels and just found it's like reading like High Fidelity or something like that. And it's just like super cringy and like male. But I think some of these adaptations have like brought interesting questions to these associations of Murakami in quite interesting ways like with the Stephen Yeun character in Burning and then again in this one like he can only drive the car because the last sort of who was allowed to you know who was in this artist residency like ran someone over in a sort of fit of madness and then you've got this other um, actor in it who's like uh, being who's on the run for he's like been cancelled from like the Tokyo community for having a relationship with like an underage girl setting it in Hiroshima is an interesting decision to base on purely on its sort of remoteness from Tokyo terms yeah. of like the modern character's existence and they drive all the way to Hokkaido as well it's a mad amount of uh, land <laughs> oh man it's such a peng film oh. it was supposed to be shot in um, Busan in South Korea right uh, yeah I heard Hamaguchi talking about this they wanted to shoot in Tokyo but then the government weren't really helping them out with like permits and stuff like that. So then they were like, oh, fuck it, we're going to do it in Busan. And then the pandemic hit and they were like, okay, we have to do it in Japan. So they um, filmed, they moved it to Hiroshima. After that. Damn. Um, it's a very like sort of international feeling film um, based on a few factors. Um, as I said, I want to talk about sign language, but that relates to like how performances seem to be done there. Where they have four sets of subtitles going at the well, same yeah, time. Well, yeah, there are like Korean and Japanese actors performing at the same time, and then with like subtitles uh, or like surtitles or whatever, like at the opera or something, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I just I didn't know that's what they do. It's crazy. Um, and they also have a character that that signs. 
um, and she is amazing in it. Yeah, and there's characters who like can't even speak the same language as the people they're acting with or whatever. Like, yeah, there's a character exactly. who doesn't speak Cantonese or Korean or something like that. Yeah, it's wild. Every production that we're shown in it, because um, you know, at, there's another point where we see like a production of um, Waiting for Godot, I think, and there it's the same. But maybe that's some like art theatre production but i didn't get that sense it just seems like that's like a normal practice there i know you haven't got too far with it but if you like um drive my car i can't recommend out one by jack rivet enough it's the same and they're the best thing to watch One film that I really, really liked, and if we were doing like a top films, I mean, this would be joint one with like five other ones or whatever. Um, but <laughs> this is Andreas Fontana's um, Azor, a sort of Heart of Darkness style journey into, um, I think, late 70s, sort of junta led Argentina. Main character is a Swiss banker, loosely based on Fontana's own grandfather, who left behind a sort of, you know, very prosaic uh, diary. He was also a Swiss banker of his trip to Argentina in this period. And then Fontana was like, you know, this film is like sort of trying to imagine like all the peak shit that was like going on around that, basically. Like Bond's, uh, what's fucking Rami Malek's character called again? Lucifer Satan. Yeah, and also like 2021's uh, Cruella. Oh, big movie, yeah. The main character of this is called Deville. Um, um. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, I feel like we've already discussed some sort of Machiavellian characters on this episode. But yeah, I mean, this is a guy... It's a story about complicity. It's like a proper Z movie. And yeah, I just thought it was brilliant. It has a great, like, sort of electronic, like, sort of drone score, but then a sensational sequence set in, like, a small chapel where someone is playing an Abel Fleury um, guitar piece, which I may or may not record for this episode. Favourite tune of 21. Yeah, it's a biggie. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, what else is there to say about it? Um, oh, yeah, here we go. Nazi literatures of the Americas. Hey, <laughs> yeah, there we go. The that's bingo the, card. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it has a very... It, it literally is Heart of Darkness, but, like, the character is, like, more of a shithead or whatever. Yeah, it was It was reminding me of the Lucrecia Martel films quite a lot. Mm. Um, not just for the setting and the sort of background, but that sort of... Um, Antonio Anidness, the spiritual death of the like financial class or whatever, you know. It's a portrait of like decadence, um, like all of these things, yeah. I thought it was great. I think it's on movie now. It is. Long may it stay. Yeah. Uh, I see movie movie started putting out DVDs this year. Oh no oh I saw they've uh, yeah, they started like a physical version of the notebook as well, right? Which is cool. That's funny though, because like 
everyone complains about Netflix like buying critics and stuff oh, like yeah. that. Whereas whereas Mubi have their own fucking magazine and shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Dust all blood lines. Um a few uh did you see PVT chat, by the way? No, Private I don't I don't want to watch I don't want to watch that, man. Yeah, no. I mean it's sort of like Safdie's light. Um it has yeah, sure. um I mean, Julia Fox plays like a cam girl in it. And um, like the other main character is a gambling addict. It's got Buddy Duress in it. Yeah, that's what I was going to... Yeah, that's also what I was trying to get to. I couldn't remember his name though, so I was sort of filibustering. No, thank you. (laughs) It's made Um, by the dude from the band Bodega, who are all right, actually. Is that right? They're okay. Glowing endorsement. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I... um, Yeah, I... I'm yeah. never gonna watch that, man. Yeah, I'll fucking, I watched the scariest sixty first like a cunt, and Ooh, you know, yeah, fuck, fuck this shit, man. Didn't, didn't go for that it's, one. Um, <laughs> I think we both like Zola. Is that correct? Oh yeah. So this well, is. Well, we definitely did. we were sitting next to each other. Yeah. <laughs> we definitely did. There's no no room for lies now. <laughs> I thought Zola was fucking wicked, man. Yeah. So this is like a very sort of sensational stylized adaptation of. Oh, how many tweets is it? It's like over a hundred odd. Hundred odd. It's like uh, Keisha uh, the Sket or something like that. You know, yeah. Which also got reprinted this year by uh-huh. Stormzy's um, publishing company. Yeah. So if you if you can remember any cool uh, viral threads from the first half of social media, <laughs> shout film producers ASAP because yeah. this is. Big, big trend for 22. It does it well. It's It's got Greg the Egg in it. What's his name? Oh, he's Nicholas Braun. He was yeah. so good. Yeah. Best as like supporting a very actor, man. Sort of p- pathetic, like sort of cuck character. Um, <laughs> Coleman Domingo is a sort of pimp. Is um, hilarious. He's great. Um, yeah. and this is the most American movie of 2021. Yeah. Say, that's sure, my award. Sure. Um was that not the card counter? Mm, Obama's mm. favorite film. <laughs> Your favorite. I'm so film? glad. Yeah, yeah it's up there. Yeah, I I liked it more than First Reformed. Mm, I thought you know it's it got a sh- somehow yeah, it got a, it got a way shitter release than First Reformed because um, mm. I guess it doesn't have that sort of awardsy pedigree. Because Oscar Isaac be a- is one of the like most bankable actors though. Yeah, and he killed it in this film, mm. as did Ty Sheridan from um, Ready Player One, and <laughs> Tiffany Haddish. Yeah, what a cast! Like, yeah. oh, I I saw it twice. the The mm. release was kind of fucked. So the first time I saw it was at like one o'clock on a Saturday in the Odeon Covent Garden. Yeah, we but, saw um, it in the morning. I think Shan and I in yeah, like nice. West Twelve um, view. But no one's making films like Paul Schrader. And I think he's made some of the best films he's ever made in the last few years. Like, he sees through everything and he's just so committed to the stance at this point. Mm. It's, it's really punishing, harrowing, dark stuff. Yeah. And it's so trolly <laughs> and nihilistic. But I'm so grateful for his cinematic output, like, right now. Let's talk about the fucking crazy lens they use for the Abu Ghraib sequences. Yeah, I've right. really never seen anything like this before. Did you say the Soderbergh film had a similar sort of thing going on? Oh, yeah. So I watched No Sudden Move and that, well, that's like a fisheye, right? Right. Whereas okay. this feels this is, like a sort of... This is of, the opposite. Yeah. Where 
people are walking and their limbs are like going in crazy directions in this. Yeah. Um, and it's as like freaky as hell. <laughs> Darrell said it was like um, Francis Bourgeois, you know, the train. Yeah. Um, yeah it's fucking bizarre but one of the cinematic moments of the year for me for sure like that absolutely hellish you know covered in shit and there's this like awful sort of blast beat playing really fucking loud like bravura filmmaking yeah unremitting the the card counter a film about fucking abu (laughs) grave and extraordinary rendition you know like That's a brutal film. I'm not going to forget it. That's one to rewatch, like in a few years' time, and be like, relive how exactly how harrowing it was. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's also got that that date bit in the middle of the film, which is just the most yeah, beautiful wild. thing wild. I've seen this year. Absolutely wild. Oh, um, oh it's somewhere in Vegas, right? Do you mean the where? So yeah, the whole the film like, is like garden. super drab and then they go to this crazy garden full of <laughs> like different coloured light bulbs. Um, and she says, have you ever seen a city all lit up? And he said, I've, I've seen a city on fire. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, she was <laughs> also <laughs> she was also sensational in um, Bad Trip, the uh, sort of hidden camera comedy featuring, featuring Eric Andre. Very um, fine movie, man. Yeah, it came out like right at the beginning of the year, I feel, straight to Netflix or whatever. I think after being leaked to Amazon as well. <laughs> so, Is that right? Um, yeah, but... They luck it. I don't know. I. It's hilarious, man. He's always the... sort of tickled me with his performance style. And yeah, the editing is wild. Of just like... Yeah, it's like the other side of the wind or something like that, right? Um, oh, okay. You said West Side, you love West Side Story, but this film definitely has the best musical number about a girl called Maria in it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it does. I read something that was talking about how, like, the on cinema Oscar special and, like, I think you should leave and this are, like, catching up to the legacy of um, Tom Green's Freddie Got Fingered, like, 20 right. years later or whatever. And it does have that. Similar sort of like, even though you're along for the ride, it can still like really fuck with your expectations like at any point mm. when you're watching the film mm. and like really um, pull some freaky shit, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's it really is like gag after gag. Some of them are extremely um, elaborate, I guess is yeah. the word I'm reaching <laughs> for here. Um, and yeah, Tiffany Haddish is great um, as like, I think she played, like, Lil Ray Howery is, like, his best friend in the film. That's right. As, yeah. like, a normie or whatever. And then she plays his, like, hardened criminal sister who's, like, chasing them down. So it's sort of like a, like a road movie as well. It's so goofy, but I don't know. I'll do watch you, it again, yeah, actually. Yeah, I watched it. It was like a Jerry though, Lewis but... movie. <laughs> it really was. It really, really was. <laughs> Yeah, I know you're Jerry pilled at the moment. Uh, yeah, you can knock. You're gonna get that on the bingo card a lot for, for Film Grace 2022, I reckon. It was Great. like a Jerry Lewis movie though, where like it's just you can't contain it. You know, mm. it's too mad. I'm like, I'm sort of cracking up thinking about it. To be honest, it was very funny <laughs> and just yeah, stupid. Um, perhaps that wraps up our sort of American miscellany and we can end this episode hey. 
on oh, the Clint. There's been enough. There's been enough Clint erasure on this damn fucking podcast, right? And that was the worst one you've done yet, Sam. <laughs> I asked you earlier. I was like, "Do you want to talk about Clint now?" And you were like, "No, no, no, oh, yeah, later. Yeah. Like, no, no, I'll save it for a more solemn, respectful moment." Um, so there's never the been a trip. film. There's never been a yeah. Here's another bad trip. Although it actually, it's pretty. It's a pretty good trip. It's a pretty good time. Cry Macho, directed by Clint Eastwood, mm. um, from 2021. Talk about films that are only screened at like one, one in the afternoon, or like 11:30 at night in Basingstoke or whatever. Like, dude, yeah, I was gonna go see it in Basingstoke. Um, I ended up going to see it at Westfield, not by myself. Oh wow. Um, <laughs> On a, I know, man, on a Sunday night. So yeah. shout out Jack and Josh, friends of the show. We had a great time. It was a, it was pretty um, busy screening as well. And everyone seemed to love it. I certainly did. I've never seen, you know, the last few films that Clint has made have been extraordinary, I think. And this is not very extraordinary. <laughs> it's different. Yeah, it's, what? Um, he's just fucking old, man. And mm. like, it's, it's mad to watch. Because, you know, I show the trailer to people and they're like, fuck, he's so old, man. You know? But I mean, that's been applicable for the last, like, 15 years. That's and he's the still doing More it. More than that. More than <laughs> like... that. Unforgiven is a film about how old he, yeah. about how he's too old to ride a horse anymore. He rides a horse in this film, man. Oh, it's so he lit. hides. He, you know, makes love he to a woman. He hides. <laughs> is he... there a threesome? <laughs> He hides behind a stack of boxes. He has a nap in like a stalker moment. Great. There's one bit that's I will never forget where he literally just fucks a line. Like <laughs> he's saying something and he like trips over it and he like, and then he says it again and he just holds it because he didn't, cause he didn't want to send anyone you know home after lunch or whatever you know. I rewatched Perfect World the other day and in that he's like halfway out of the frame in like every scene he's in and stuff. Beautiful. Like that. This is just what he does, but. For someone who rushes his production so much and does everything so quickly, he always manages to shoot like the sunset at the perfect mm. time of day. You know, like mm. there is this crazy intuitiveness to, you know, this man clearly his filmmaking noose isn't like absolutely like Oscar gold heavy hitting in the way that it was maybe like 15, 15, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, whatever. But it's just. He's still your million dollar. Baby. I was in, I was in awe of what I was watching at the yeah. cinema. Yeah, like, I properly, yeah. like wow. And maybe I'm a, an idiot for feeling that way. But I'm really down, man. I will definitely watch it at home. But then I saw like The Mule and Richard Jewell at home, and I found them just as affecting. So yeah, I mean, I'm fully on board, man. I'm glad you got to see it in the cinema, though, because <laughs> you're happy you know, for me. <laughs> yeah, you've got a. It was great, and there's a couple other sort of uh, movies that interrogate the traditions of the old West in interesting novel ways. Mm. Um, Paul Greengrass's News of the World was a banger that I haven't stopped thinking about since we did that. <laughs> no, it was good actually. Was I that did. this year? Yeah, 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 I fuck with it. It was good. No one's thinking about that film. Nah. Eleven months down the line, but it was good. Yeah, 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 I enjoy, I enjoyed it. I feel like we were very Ford mode at the time, so always it was a good time to watch it. Yeah, so yeah. was Greengrass. Mm. Um, but yeah, Power of the Dog. I wish I'd read the. Um, is it Thomas Savage? It is. Yeah, it's, it's one of those 60s, ones. Right? Yeah, it's one of those ones where I really wish I'd 
been able to do a sort of comparative reading because yeah. it's a very subtle film. It really doesn't like beat you over the head with what's going on. I thought it was ridiculously subtle, man, to the point where it was like a Shyamalan movie where like where the film had ended, it made me reconsider everything I'd seen. That's exactly it. And a lesser film would have done like a little montage, like showing you every moment that's like led up to that or like anything to like sort of recapitulate what the events that brought you to that point. But yeah, I mean, it's just masterful. Yeah, it's, it so is masterful. Like Jane Campion is so wicked with it where like mm. there's something like every frame has a mad object in it or like a mad sort of thing to pivot around like the performances are great yeah let's just run them up benedict cumberbatch is the sort of like repressed like sort of intellectual rancher he's doing um, like a sort of um john wayne robert mitchum impression and i didn't really buy it at all at the start mm. but it's not really the point anyway i guess nah. it's all all this all this stuff is a performance anyway right so that kind of <laughs> yeah well that's very much part of it um jesse plemons is his more like sort of like normy like sort of modernizing <laughs> brother it's set in 1925 by the way but like mm. feels very much so like a. it could have been set any time in the previous like 20 years mm -hmm. so jesse plemons's character marries like a widow played by kirsten dunst and her son is played by um cody smith mcphee who um benedict cumberbatch's character calls uh little lord fawn tallroy oh yeah nice. <laughs> as a sort of uh, as a reference to the contemporary smash yeah exactly uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> jokes man so it's about these like sort of different uh sort of registers of masculinity in 20s america and especially in a rural region um and it handles that in such an interesting way um, I didn't realise there was going to be a sort of strong sort of queer component to this film. Um, it's drawn comparisons with Brokeback Mountain, which mm -hmm. is, I haven't seen, but I mean, that's like the main aspect of that film. Whereas here, it's more of like a sort of clue or like sort of just a bit of texture yeah. to the sort of psychologies of the characters. All her films are so rich, the ones I've seen. They've all got so many different sort of generic elements at play and like different modes of disclosure and like, loads of different stories and like internal sort of pathologies all sort of like all four of those characters that you just described are so fleshed out mm. and like having interesting fucking narratives in this in this movie like you know which is an incredibly rare thing to see man but you do see yeah. it a lot more in the films of like howard hawks for example or someone like that mm. you know than you do on netflix which this film <laughs> came out yeah, exactly. Uh, the scene had a very limited cinematic release, but... Oh, it would have been sick I in the cinema. It at home. Yeah, it really would have been. There's so crazy landscape photography as well. Um, I think it was... I mean, it's set in Montana, but it's... But, but it's, it's yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, some of that landscape shit is just amazing. You do spend an awful long time looking at certain uh, landscape features. I think even longer than you do in the Kelly Reichardt movie. Mm. Um, but I'm I'm down. That's what I got yeah. to the cinema to do, straight up. Really, really pang. Really took me off guard this film, especially with like a sort of bait cast as well. Um, I'm not really familiar with her films. I guess the what's it? The piano is that amazing? The, like the big one or whatever. Um, yeah, you loved you loved Benedict Cumberbatch this year, huh? He's your man. Ooh, well, I really enjoyed, yeah, I really enjoyed The Electrical Life of Lou Wayne, actually, but that's not a 2021 film, so... 
fair enough. Yeah. And we haven't and you haven't seen Doctor Strange and Spider Man, so yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. I guess he didn't. Um, but no, he was. He was really good in it, actually, I yeah. thought. Um, also, classic Johnny Greenwood score in this film. Like, lots of double bass doing, like, interesting stuff. It's oh. fire, actually. He also did the soundtrack for Spencer, which I thought was an awesome film. Oh, my God. How did we forget Spencer? We forgot it. Which was one of my worst films of the year. No. <laughs> it was so good. <laughs> yeah, tell me why you like Spencer compared to Jackie or something, which I think was definitely better. Okay. I, I hate all shit about the royals mm. blanketly and i said quite inflammatorily the other day in the pub that i hate princess diana more than the royals which i obviously <laughs> which i didn't mean it's obviously yeah. a, a stupid thing to say but i hate them about the same level a eh? and also i hate the way that she's memorialized and like you know still 25 years later like you know talked about all the time like diana would have loved this diana would have hated this I found Kristen Stewart to be rather convincing in a sort of unnatural way. Mm. And I thought it was all quite, again, kind of greenaway mode. Jackie was a movie all about like discomfort. And this is something that I think um, Lorraine captures really well in quite a lot of his movies. Um, unease, paranoia. And this I thought was perfect for it. I thought it was one of his best movies for that. Where it does sort of feel like uh, a Kubrick movie or something which is such a lame comparison, but it's definitely what he's going after. Yeah, maybe for some of the interiors where it's like uh, the camera will like pan on like an axis and then like you can see through a set of doors and then more doors and stuff like that. The interiors were cool. What did you find really didn't work for you besides the milieu? <sighs> yeah, okay, th there are two things. Well, three things including the milieu, which, like, I just didn't feel it was critical enough of that, even though there were some scenes that gestured towards it. Firstly, I really found her sort of unwatchably bad in this film. Yeah. And secondly, the sort of dreams... She goes back to her ancestral home, and there's this sort of fantasy sequence, which was, like, one of the most phoned-in bits of filmmaking <laughs> I feel like I've ever seen. Uh, especially compared to... As you said, the sort of discomfort in Jackie and how that transmits into like sort of shallow focus, mm. um, like sort of a agitated frame. Whereas here it was just like, ugh. yeah, it was like the shittest dream sequence I've ever seen. Oh, I found the whole thing pretty harrowing and uh, a pretty mad experience. Yeah, I, I, I did like the bit at the end where they all go and get KFC. Shout out KFC. We love KFC. Yeah. <laughs> what is it, like Harry propaganda or something? I don't know. I don't have a sort of interpretation. I don't care. Again, I want these people gone as quickly as possible, but <laughs> I don't care to see them yeah. or think about them. However. She is construed as an outsider, though. Like, yeah, it's nonsense. <laughs> whereas she's like an aristocrat. Exactly. Like, what? It's the same shit. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is something that the film deals with, but in a very, like, oblique way. It's Definitely. like, oh, she's gone back to her, like, quaint little family home. <laughs> it's like round the corner like, from the palace. Like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I think it's, do okay, me a favour. I thought this was, you know, <laughs> that was an element of it, about it that I quite liked. That was quite, as a sort of outsidery analytical thing that you couldn't, you know, because when English people make these sort of movies, they're so bad, man, like... They got absolutely nothing to say. And this was a really good version of that. 
to me. It does, yeah. I mean, it does represent the royal families like cold and um, murderous. Yeah, yeah, but I don't know. The production design was cool. I will give it that. Yeah. There's a crazy shower in this film that I've never seen. The shower that looks like <laughs> yeah. that, and I assume I'll never see one again because I'm not going to Balmoral. <laughs> Yeah, oh, I'm glad you remembered. It's definitely worth talking about this one, but I mean, I remember the sound design more than I remember the score for this one. Because mm. I feel like it was like super like stereo mixed and there, there was lots of like jangling and like little bells. I guess that is the score, yeah. but it was more like how it was like um, incorporated into the film or like mixed or whatever that stood out to me than the actual music. Whereas in The Power of the Dog, it was like... Ba-dong! like jokes like bass stuff he's a good composer i think he's one of the best best film composers probably yeah yeah i mean he has he's had a crazy film career yeah for sure although the score in licorice pizza i mainly remember just like the needle drops yeah rather than the score itself but we'll talk about that that on the next episode of film grace one more movie i think it was the first film we talked about of the year Mm. um so let it be the last because it was fantastic. I still think about it all the time. First Cow by Kelly Reichardt. What a masterpiece. Yeah, still one of my favourites of the year, man. A tender film. A great. It would make a great double bill with Power of the Dog, yeah. even though it's set like a century earlier. It would make a great triple bill with Power of the Dog and Red River. Because all about... <laughs> you got one yeah, cow, really... then you got a thousand cows, then you got like however many cows. <laughs> I really need to watch Red River, man. Yeah, Red River, best film of 2021. <laughs> okay. But yeah, a really special film. I re- was really glad I got to catch it in the cinema. Not for my first watch, but Kelly Reichardt is just the queen, really. She makes great movies, that's for sure. We love it when people make great movies on Film Grace. Amazing movies this year, I'd just like to say. Mm. And there's some amazing movies coming out next year. And it did feel like a really bumper year. It felt like every week there was something like pretty significant coming out, more or less. I wasn't like at a loss for something to go see at the pictures. Mm. For another pandemic year, it's been pretty crazy. I know the box office results, like, as I said earlier, like Bond almost broke like a billion. And then it's like Spider-Man and then everything else is like in the like 20 million region. Whereas like pre-pandemic, it would have been a bit more staggered, if that makes sense. Like, um, but yeah, we have been able to see loads of great shit i just wanted to say you know it was also good to be able to watch loads of 1921 films um probably watch more of those than films from 2021 i reckon yeah definitely and it was also great to do the sort of director rundowns with you hopefully we get to do more of those in the new year yeah definitely man i think we're gonna do two in the next month Although oh yeah <laughs> yeah and that's our quiz of the I year i always jinx it on this part <laughs> yeah we're gonna do this we're gonna do that but no episodes on paul thomas anderson and a pitch upon where it's ethical coming very soon and they're cool new movies one of which is one of the greatest films ever made let me say that i say that about everything but i <laughs> i really mean it this time <laughs> And it's not the racist nonce vibes movie, which I thought was amazing as well. <laughs> yeah. Lots to look forward to in 2022. Vampire. Wait, is that 2022? <laughs> uh, nah. nah. <laughs> Nosferatu. What have we got? Hexan. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> 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 um, well, what's coming yeah, out? Think... Bergman Island. I want to see that. Nightmare Alley. Belfast. The Batman. <laughs> yeah. <that's> a... <laughs> 
<laughs> there must be There'll more be films. something. We'll find There'll be we'll something. find something to talk about. See you in Yeah. Well, it's, it is twenty twenty already. It is twenty two. Yeah, it's fully it's fully twenty two at the time of recording. See you soon. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Nice one. Thank you for listening. Cheers.